Thank you, Dan and choir and instrumentalists for beautiful worship today. We continue our Markin Sermon Series. It will take us all the way to Easter Sunday, and I hope you'll be here every Sunday for that. If you've missed the first or second sermon in the series, you can go to our website, firstamarillo.org, and you can listen to the sermon, you can watch the sermon, or you can print off the sermon, uh, however you best receive that information. So we want you to catch up and follow this movement and series all the way through uh, Mark's gospel. We're today at at sermon uh, number three, Mistaken Identity. Bologna, grilled cheese, club, egg salad. Everybody's going to go home and have a sandwich today, aren't they? I've got you building up here. Reuben or even a Monte Cristo. Americans are in love with our sandwiches like no other culture. And all those sandwiches have one thing in common. The bread, the spread, the bread. That's it. You'll be marking experts. The bread, the spread, the bread. Now, the spread might be pimento cheese, not my favorite, peanut butter, tuna, not my favorite, or or turkey, and it's sandwiched between two slices of bread. All of these sandwiches begin with bread, they journey into our favorite filling, and then they return in the journey to the bread once more. Slosky's and Subway and Panera Bread aren't the only places making sandwiches, Long before these marketers, Mark was a master of making a really good sandwich. But his sandwiches aren't anything you can eat. His sandwiches are a literary technique, a storytelling technique. And today we come to the first of Mark's sandwiches. When Mark serves us a literary sandwich, he begins with story number one. And all of a sudden, it's like someone changed the television channel. There's just a new story. You've, you've seen that before. You look up and it's all different. And you say, did someone change the channel? What happened here? Where did my story go? That's what Mark does. He starts with story number one. And then he flips over to story number two. And when you think you'll, you'll never find the ending of story number one, he comes back to the first story, making the famous Mark and Sandwich. Story one, story two, story one. Now, why would he do that? Why would he interrupt the first story with a second story and return to the second story? It's two stories for Mark, but he places them within each other because He wants to communicate one single truth. Two stories, but one meaning to the the story. In our first sandwich here today, he begins with a story about Jesus' family. They come to claim him because they don't think that Jesus, their son or their brother, is the Messiah. They think he's a madman. And so we start with this story about his mother and brothers coming to claim him. And then all of a sudden, he switches to a story about the scribes coming down from Jerusalem, well, to to give him a test, to question him, to, to to ruin his reputation. And then he comes back to the first story about Mary and the brothers of Jesus and interprets for us what it really means to be, to be family. Well, the common meaning is clear. 
What Mark is trying to say to us is that no one, not his family, not the religious authorities in Jerusalem, no one can redefine or redirect the ministry of Jesus. He has come to proclaim the arrival of the kingdom of God. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, or the kingdom of heaven. It is a call and a proclamation, and all of that is done through the power of the Holy Spirit. Two stories, one meaning. Jesus is the Messiah, not a madman, not a demon-possessed lunatic, who proclaims at last the arrival of the kingdom of God. Point number one, Messiah or madman? Messiah or madman? Look at verse Verse 20, and when he came home, the multitude gathered to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. Now, turn back to our sermon last week. Turn back to chapter 2, verse 1, and it's interesting the parallel beginning between the beginning of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. In both instances, there's a crowd when Jesus comes home. Look at, look at chapter 2, 1. And when he had come back to Capernaum, several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home, and many were gathered together, so there was no longer room, even near the door, and he was speaking the logos, or the word to them. Uh, I brought to your attention last week that Capernaum might be thought of as Jesus' own hometown. You might naturally think about Nazareth or, or Bethlehem, but it's really Capernaum, this city on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee that becomes the headquarters, and this is probably the home of Peter and Andrew here. So Jesus, like in chapter 2, comes home. Home for Jesus, home-based ministry is Capernaum. And what happens every time he's in Capernaum? The crowds begin to gather you remember last week, there was such a crowd, they couldn't get the paralytic to Jesus, and they had to cut a hole in the roof and, and let him down. Well, now that, that crowd has gathered again, and Mark makes an observation that the crowd is so swarming. Look at the end of verse 20. They could not eat a meal. Now, the literal Greek text there says they could not break bread break bread. It's, it's probably translated right in your version. Your version may say break bread. It probably means they, they, didn't, they couldn't even eat a meal. We couldn't even get a bite to eat. We'll say something like that sometimes, even today, won't we? Uh, you want to go break some bread, we mean? Meaning, do you want to have a meal? Well, Jesus has come home to Capernaum. That's where he healed all the sick, cast out all the demons, and now they are flocking again he has come home, and there isn't even space or time to break any bread, to grab a bite to eat. Well, he's become so popular that now the word has spread that this new rabbi has arrived, and his family, his mothers, and his brothers find out where he is. Look at verse 21. And his own people heard of this. Now, the words used for his own people could be broader than his immediate family. That term there can mean more than immediate family, mother and brothers. But notice how he identifies them later in verse uh, 22. Your mother and your brothers are looking for you. So his own people there means 
his mother and his brothers as defined within the second piece of bread, the end of the story. So now his, his family comes. They are coming to say that he is not the Messiah, but rather he is a madman. He's so popular, they hear where he is, they go to retrieve him. They go to get their son and their brother. Well, the charge against Jesus is clear. Look at verse 21. And when his own people, we know that's his mother and his brothers, heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, he has lost his senses. He has lost his senses. He is a madman. They're saying he is not the Messiah. Now that's, before we're too hard on Jesus' family, they really came to one of only two conclusions. The reality is you have to come to one of those two conclusions. Either Jesus is the Messiah or he is a lunatic, a bad man. There is, there is no in-between. You can't make Jesus just a, a good teacher of old, a, a moral teacher a famous person who died by crucifixion. You can't make Jesus that. He claimed to be the Messiah, the Son of God. He is either the Messiah or he is a self-deceived madman. So the question looming large with the bread, the beginning, the first story involving his mother and brothers, well, the question is this. Is this rabbi the Messiah or is he the madman? Messiah or madman? The question is there in the text. Well, notice, I want you to notice the, the crowd rallies around Jesus, but his family comes to round him up. You see the difference? The crowd rallies around Jesus, but his own family came to round him up. Why did they do that? Either they wanted to protect Jesus uh, from his own self-delusion, or they wanted to protect their family's reputation. They couldn't have him out there talking that way, claiming to be the one who brings in, ushers in the kingdom of God. And so the crowd gathers around, but the family tries to round him up. Messiah or madman? The second words are ally of demons or deliverer from demons. Ally of demons or deliverer from demons. Look at verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem. Now, verse 22, if you write in your Bible, you can put, we can put spread here. We, we have switched here. We have gone to story. You'll wonder years from now, why did I write spread there in my Bible? The first story, mother and brothers is the bread. And now we're starting story number two. Why didn't he tell us about the mother and brothers and how that ends? All of a sudden, he just starts story number two, the spread. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub, and he cast out demons by the ruler of demons. And he called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself, he is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds a strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Getting past story number one, the mother and brothers of Jesus, we come to the spread after the bread, story number two. 
Now, Jesus' own family had mistaken him as a madman, deranged, but now the scribes come down from Jerusalem, and they say he is demon-possessed. He is a lunatic. He is demon-possessed. That's what they're saying about Jesus. Now, in Mark's gospel, every time you read the word scribe, you know they're an enemy of Jesus. There's no good stories about a scribe in Mark. Nor is Jerusalem ever a good place for Jesus in Mark. So, as a reader, the word scribe and the word Jerusalem, you start playing the dark, discordant music. The bad characters are coming on the stage. Now we have the scribes from Jerusalem. They may be an official delegation from the Jewish high court, the Sanhedrin. We can't be sure, but here they come. And they make two accusations against this popular rabbi, Jesus. Number one, they say he is demon-possessed. Number one, they say he is demon-possessed. Number two, they say he cast out demons by the power of Satan. He's demon-possessed. And he cast out demons by the power of Beelzebul, by the power of demons. That's their two accusations against him. Now, this word Beelzebul is not used anywhere else in Jewish writing. It, it probably means the prince of darkness. Uh, it's kind of a lord of the flies. It's the prince of darkness. Now, notice what they don't say. They do not say... He didn't have the power to cast out demons. Why do they not say that? I mean, would they want to discredit him and say, he can't cast out demons? I'll tell you why they don't say that. Turn back to Mark 127. And this happens throughout uh, Mark's gospel, Mark 127. Mark 127, and they were all amazed. So they debated among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands the unclean spirits, and they obey him. They can't say that Jesus doesn't have power over demons because the crowd's already seen it. Look down at verse 32 of, of chapter 1. And when evening had come, the sun had set, they began bringing him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. Look at verse 34. And he healed many who were ill with various diseases, and he cast out many demons. Look at verse 39, the same chapter. And he went throughout their synagogues, throughout Galilee, preaching and casting out the demons. They do not say Jesus has no authority over demons. And they do not say that because the crowd has seen him over and over and over again cast out the demons. So all they can say is, well, he has a demon himself and he cast out demons by the power of demons. That's how he's able to do it. Well, notice what Jesus does to them. Look at verse 23 of chapter 3. He began speaking in parables. You notice that word? When Jesus speaks in parables, he's speaking in a language that he will interpret for his disciples, but he will not interpret for the crowd at large. The word parable here could be metaphor or simile or allegory or any of those things. But notice, 
In Mark's gospel, the crowd never gets an interpretation of the parable. Only the disciples get the interpretation. So he's speaking in something of a, a code language when he speaks in a parable. And in the parable, he tells them, how can Satan fight against Satan? How can a house divided be able to stand? If I'm going to cast out the demons of hell, then I have to bind Satan, the strong man, that I, the stronger man, have arrived with the kingdom of God. You see that? I'm not empowered by Satan. I've tied Satan up. I have bound him. I am the stronger man that is willing to cast out those demons. Well, there's a third thing I want you to see. Verse 29 and 30. Forgivable. Or unforgivable? Forgivable or unforgivable? Now listen really close at this section. This is where we have the introduction of the idea of the unpardonable sin. And that is a very misunderstood concept in Scripture. Well, let's look at verse 29. He says to them, let's begin in verse, verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sin shall be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. I want you to notice the last verse there, verse 30. Because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. From time to time, someone will come to me with a very sweet and earnest spirit, and the conversation will go something like this. Pastor, I can't sleep at night. Pastor, I think I'm afraid that I've done it. I think I've crossed the line. I think I've gone too far. Well, what have you done? And how have you gone too far? Pastor, I think I have crossed the line, and I have committed the unpardonable sin. I have fallen too far. I think I am beyond God's grace. What do you think, pastor? Have I strayed too far? Wow, wouldn't that be a burden to carry, to think you are beyond God's grace? Well, here's my response every time, and it is 100% accurate if Mark's gospel is true. If you are concerned whether you have committed the unpardonable sin, you have not committed the sin. If you have that question in your mind, the fact that you are debating morally in your mind is a sign that you haven't gone too far, that you have not committed the sin. Those in this text who have committed that sin say Jesus is demon-possessed, and they call his power the power of Satan. They have no moral dilemma. They are not wondering whether they're right or wrong. They have become so wrong, they call the light dark and the dark light. They are lost and have no moral conscience and no moral compass. You see the difference? The unpardonable sin is when we call that which is good evil. They called the Son of God an operative of Satan. And they're absolutely sure of it. They have gone so far, they cannot identify that which is holy and righteous and good. They 
The scribes are supposed to be the ones seeking the way of salvation and teaching others the way of salvation, but instead they identify the way of salvation, the Christ, with Satan himself, and then try to preserve their power by undermining the work, the work of God. Now, interestingly enough, do you remember in our last story when Jesus says to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you? Jesus is saying that he can do what only God can do. And they say he blasphemes. He claims to have the power of God. And now they called Jesus a blasphemer there. And now Jesus calls them blasphemous. And all other blasphemies can be forgiven, he says. But you have gone so far that you're identifying the work of the Holy Spirit as an operative of Satan. You are calling light dark and dark light. And you have crossed the line. And you are totally spiritually blind and lost. And you cannot see. You see that? So if you're asking the question... Have I committed that sin? If you're bothered by it, you hadn't done it. The scribes aren't bothered by it. They are sure that light is dark and dark is light. So if you find yourself worried about that sin, that's a good thing. That means you cannot commit that sin. Well, there's a fourth and final dichotomy. Lineage or faith? Lineage or faith? Now, the Mark and Sandwich, we had the bread, the story about the mother and the brothers. Then we had the spread, the story about the scribes from Jerusalem, accusing him of being demon-possessed and casting out demons by the power of the prince of darkness. And now we come back. We need bread, right? On top, we need to come back to a story about the mother and brothers of Jesus. Well, look at verse 31. We come home. And his mother and brothers arrived standing outside, and they sent word to him and called. The multitude was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold, behold, your, your mother and your brother, they're out there. They're, they're outside. They're looking for you, your mother, your brothers. And Jesus calmly says, Who are my mother and my brothers? He looked around to those sitting around him. Verse 34 knows that, sitting around him. And he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. So the last dichotomy is lineage or faith. Verses 31 through 35, the bread, lineage or faith. Now, there is a little interesting play on words here. Earlier when he says that they had come to get him, look at verse 21. And his own people, we know that's his mother and brothers, heard of this. They went to take custody of him. That same verb, take custody of him, is used in Mark 14 when they carry Jesus to the cross. That's strong language. That's just kind of a no mistake he uses the same word. His mother and brothers come to stop the will of God. They come to take custody of him. The multitude, I want you to notice, are around Jesus. Look at verse 34. He looked at those sitting around Jesus. Now look at verse 32. Where's his family? What's the description? They are outside. You see the difference? Mark is playing on these words. His real family is around him. His lineage is outside. 
So who's my real family? Not my lineage, he says, but those who obey the word of God. Now, the question is this. Did Jesus' family ever, did they ever acknowledge him as the Christ? Well, I'm so happy to say that they did. Jesus himself said that a prophet is not without honor except in his own household. In fact, John himself describes in John 7, not even his own brothers were believing in him. John 7. But that changes, doesn't it? You remember the crucifixion scene in the Gospel of John that Mary is there right beside the cross. She has now seen the light and she's proclaiming her son to be the Christ and... Jesus says to John, the beloved disciple, behold your son, behold your mother, take care of Mary. Mary comes to be a disciple. And to remember his own brothers that one of them goes by the name of James. And James saw the resurrected Jesus, 1 Corinthians 15. Or he describes Jesus as our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, James chapter 1. Or in Acts chapter 15, the brother of James is the pillar of the church in Jerusalem. He is steadfast. He had seen his brother resurrected from the dead, and he fully believed. Or the book of Jude, also penned by a brother of Jesus. Yes, the brothers at the early part of Mark are outside, but later they are around Jesus, as is Mary. Who's my family, Jesus says? Those who do the will of God. I told you before the story that Dr. Jim Dennison shares. He was a college missionary in East Malaysia, and they were meeting in a little warehouse, and a girl had professed the lordship of Jesus that morning. They would come back for an evening baptism, and their baptismal was nothing more than a crude bathtub. And the little girl was getting baptized, the young lady was getting baptized, an adolescent. And Dennison noticed up against the wall some old luggage standing there over in the corner. And so he asked one of the permanent missionaries who would know what was going on, said, well, what's that old luggage doing sitting over there in the sanctuary? And the missionary replied, her father told her this morning, if she got baptized this evening, she could never come home again. And so she packed her luggage. Her biological father told her if she proclaimed the lordship of Jesus through baptism, she was never welcomed in his house again. And so she packed her bags. What's family? Family is church, isn't it? We are brothers and sisters to each other, and those who are older, our parents, some our grandparents. Some are children in the faith. The image of the New Testament is that our commitment together in Christ is so strong that it might even go beyond the strongest lineage on earth, that of the family with blood. So what about you? Messiah or madman? Bread, spread, bread again, there's only one question. Who is this rabbi from Capernaum? Is he 
a lunatic or he is empowered by the God himself to declare the arrival of the kingdom. And if he is a madman, we're a miserable people. If he is the Messiah, we have found the source of God's life. Let us pray. Oh God, maybe there's some here even this morning who would come and proclaim Jesus as the Messiah. Don't let us dwell in between. Everybody in this room has to decide one way or the other. There is no in-between. God will not allow it. To call him simply a good teacher is to say he's a lunatic because he didn't claim to be a good teacher. He claimed to be the Son of God, to embody the kingdom of God. Father, perhaps there's some watching by way of television or some even in this great sanctuary. He would say, this is my day. Make him my Lord, my Savior, my Messiah. There may be others who come to be part of this family, to call each of us brothers and sisters as they become part of the First Baptist family. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.